God calls us as his people into worship. Praise awaits you, O God, in Zion. To you our vows will be fulfilled. O you who hear prayer, to you all men will come. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. Blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. You answer us with awesome deeds of righteousness, O God our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength, who still the roaring seas, the roaring of their waves and the turmoil of the nations. Those living far away fear your wonders where morning dawns and evening fades. You call forth songs of joy. You care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain, for so you have ordained it. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty and your cart overflows with abundance. The grasslands of the desert overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and sing. Amen. Let's sing hymn number 20. Our scripture reading gives a context for the next segment in Daniel. And what I'm going to read as scripture reading this morning is from Ezekiel chapter 1. Skipping around in Ezekiel chapter 1 and read Ezekiel 2 as well. It's a fairly long passage, but it sets a real context for Daniel chapter 7 because in case you're not aware of it, Ezekiel the prophet was a contemporary of Daniel and Daniel and his three friends in Babylon would have had access to Ezekiel's prophecies. So let's read Ezekiel chapter 1 and we'll come back to Ezekiel chapter 1 next week as well as we finish up Daniel chapter 7. Ezekiel chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kibar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, by the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was upon him. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had the hands of a man. All four of them had faces and wings, and their wings touched one another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Skipping down to verse 25. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire and brilliant lights surrounded him, like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, I heard the voice of one speaking. He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. As he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, and whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or terrified by them, though they are a rebellious house. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen 
or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me, and in it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. Andre, can you come lead us in prayer? Well, we'll now come to a new part of the book of Daniel. And Daniel chapter 7 really begins with the prophetic part of the book of Daniel. And we've worked our way through Daniel with the historical sections of Daniel. And now we enter in that prophetic or some call apocalyptic sections of Daniel. And let me tell you, this is some very difficult material. Uh, this, this material in, from Daniel chapter 7 on, there have been very many different interpretations of what Daniel saw in these visions and what these visions meant. So I'm not going to be very dogmatic today about my particular conclusions as a result of my study. But I think that what we can do is that regardless of how difficult these passages are, I believe that we can actually understand them if we put them in the context in which Daniel was living. If we understand where Daniel lived in history, and if we understand his context as far as how he understood all of the Bible from Genesis up until his point in time, then I think that we can actually get a chance to understand what, da- what Daniel is talking about in these prophetic portions. And I do believe that they are very important to understand because what you're going to see in Daniel 7 in particular, Daniel 7 lies in the background of the New Testament. So if we fail to understand Daniel chapter 7 and the prophecies that Daniel gives to us through his visions, we're not going to really have a good ground or a good base to understand the details of what's going on in the New Testament. A lot of people read the New Testament as if it's totally disconnected from what has come before it in the Old Testament. And the result of that is, I believe, that a lot of Christians do not understand the New Testament. Because the New Testament has deep roots all the way back in the Old Testament, in places like Daniel, even back to places like Genesis. So we have a couple of handicaps when we come to prophetic portions like Daniel chapter 7. A couple of handicaps that we need to recognize that, that we who live as modern Americans are going to have when we face these kinds of chapters. Really, most of the prophetic portions of the Old Testament, even the prophetic portions of the New Testament, we have these kind of difficulties. The very first problem is that we don't know the Old Testament as well as Daniel did. I don't know the Old Testament nearly as well as Daniel did. And so Daniel is going to be bringing things into his visions. I mean, he didn't have these visions based off of something totally brand new. He was working in the context of the scriptures that he knew. And so all these imageries and all these details from his history as a Jew would have been very profound to him and he would have known them better than we know the Old Testament today as American Christians. So that's one of the problems that we face as we go. And the way I've tried to, to, to get around that obstacle or get over that obstacle is to emphasize the historical context of the book of Daniel in Daniel's time period. And we've seen how the early chapters of Daniel build on one another. They set up a lot of the context and we're going to see that there's four beasts in Daniel chapter 7. And actually these four beasts correspond to the four kingdoms that we looked at in Daniel chapter 2 with the image of the metal man. Remember the, the metal man image that had four different metals representing four different kingdoms. Well, there's four beasts in Daniel chapter 7 and they match these four kingdoms. And we'll see how that works. So we have a context in Daniel to understand Daniel chapter 7. And if we keep this context in mind and the wider biblical context in mind, I believe that we will make the most sense out of this amazing part of the Old Testament. I think those of you who have been here for the entire series of the book of Daniel, I think you can agree with me that this is really a remarkable part of the Old Testament. Now, another problem that we face and we need to recognize in order to understand Daniel 7 is that we are not familiar with the literature and writing style that Daniel uses to convey his visions. Most all of biblical prophecy is written as what we might call apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature is really designed to (laughs) unveil these things. It's not really designed to hide things. It's designed to unveil these mysteries, these prophecies in great big, huge visions of details that that capture people's attention and imagination. 
This style of writing is very different than things we read on a daily basis, like the newspaper. This style of writing is very different than reading an instruction manual or a how-to book. This style is very different than reading a regular history book because apocalyptic literature is fundamentally symbolic. And we're going to see how those symbols work in Daniel 7. But the images and the details in this kind of writing stand for other things. They're symbols of something else. And so apocalyptic literature is also filled with hyperbole and exaggeration. You're going to see how prophetic literature works that way. And the closest thing that I can... I think I've mentioned this before, but the closest thing that we have in our culture to apocalyptic literature are cartoons. Imagine what a cartoon is. If you watch you know, the Roadrunner cartoons with you know, Wile E. Coyote chasing Roadrunner, you see all of these exaggerations going on in front of you in the cartoon. You know, Coyote runs off the cliff and he keeps running, right? And then he looks down and he figures out, oh, and then what happens? Boom, he falls. Okay, that's not a scientific account, is it? No, not exactly, but it's, a, it's, it's hyperbole and it's imagination, and that's kind of the closest thing that we have in our culture to apocalyptic literature like this. And then you have, for example, Coyote Falls on a rock. They tip the rock over to try to smash Roadrunner, but the rock goes off a cliff. And as he's falling, he's always trying to climb to the top of the rock, right? But what's always happening to the rock? It always rolls, always rolls over so that what happens to a coyote? He always gets smashed. Again, not scientific, but it communicates something. Coyote always loses, right? Coyote always loses. Well, that's kind of how apocalyptic literature like we find here in Daniel 7 works. It communicates a message, but it's not specifically a scientific message or a literal message. It's communicating on a different level like poetry which is actually how most biblical prophecy comes to us. It comes to us in poetic form. And of course, in our day and time, we are more scientific than we are poetic as a culture. And so we tend to miss the way this poetry communicates. And uh, for, for example, we don't read a lot of poetry in our daily lives, and we certainly don't write very much. And so we really don't have the tools or the skills to really kind of approach this kind of literature in the Old Testament to get the most out of it for what it was intended to do. And so Christians today tend to make a big mess out of biblical prophecy for these reasons because we don't have the skills and we don't have the tools to understand it the way it was meant to be understood. So what we're going to do is we're going to go into Daniel chapter 7 we're going to try to put ourselves into Daniel's shoes and understand what Daniel is trying to communicate with this vision. And I'm going to title this sermon actually it'll be a two-part series kind of a series within a series this would be part one. This would be visions of the beasts and the man. And this one is dealing with the beasts. And then the next one will be dealing with the man that Daniel sees in his vision. So let's go to verse 1 of Daniel chapter 7 as we continue in our series. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Now, if you've been following along in the story, you'll notice that Daniel 7 jumps back in Daniel's life to the beginning of Belshazzar's reign. In other words, we're kind of out of order here. Because remember, Belshazzar was judged, and then Darius came to the throne. And then we have the story of the lion's den after, Dan after Darius comes to the throne. Well, this is jumping backwards in Daniel's life by probably a couple decades. And so what we have here is something that's really not chronological, Chronologically speaking, Daniel 7 belongs before Daniel 5 and the account of the handwriting on the wall and the fall of Belshazzar, who we saw was a disobedient son. Remember, he disobeyed his father, Nebuchadnezzar, and broke faith with the way he treated Daniel and the way he committed idolatry. But apocalyptic literature in the Bible is not usually arranged in precise chronological sequence, at least not in an obvious sense. So this is really not a problem for us. And I believe there's actually a very good reason why Daniel 7 comes after Daniel 6. If we think about the wider context of what we looked at last time with Daniel 6, with Daniel going into the lion's den, what did, what, did that, what did that picture? What was Daniel's experience with the lion's den a picture? It was a picture of, remember, Jesus' struggle with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the other, the, the other officials of his day, who also condemned Jesus as a righteous man, like 
these people conspired against Daniel, a righteous man. And Daniel went down into the lion's den, which was a picture of the tomb. And remember, there was, there, was a, there was a stone that Darius put on the mouth of the lion's den, picturing the stone that was placed on, on the tomb of Jesus. And in fact, Darius sealed the, sealed the tomb, just like we have Pilate sealing Jesus' tomb. And then we have Daniel coming back up out of the, the den, den of lions, which was a, really a picture of resurrection. Resurrection. Daniel goes through a symbolic death, burial, and resurrection of the lion's den. And then Daniel, of course, after all the other officials received the death penalty for attempted murder. Remember, that's the sixth commandment matching Daniel chapter 6. Then Daniel ascends to the right hand of King Darius. So we have like an ascension where Daniel becomes Darius's right-hand man again at the end of Daniel 6. Well, if we keep that in context, Daniel 7 follows exactly in the right order. Because what, da- what you see with Daniel 7, Daniel 7 is instructive about the life and struggle of the early church And so the order is actually perfect because what you're going to see here is that viewed from our perspective on this side of the cross, looking back, Daniel first has this typological story of Jesus Christ, his work, his ministry, his death, burial, and resurrection. And then Daniel has visions of what's going to happen with the early church in the first century and their struggles and the details that they lived through. So that actually fits very well. And let's continue with verse 2. Daniel said... In my vision at night, I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. Now what is wind symbolic of in the Bible? Wind is associated with God's Spirit. Remember? In fact, you can see this back in Genesis chapter 1 with the creation account. God's Spirit hovered over the waters the image there is like a great eagle beating its wings. And also, you see in the New Testament the very same thing. The Spirit of God is associated with wind at Pentecost because when the Spirit was poured out, you had the wind filling the house with tongues of fire in Acts 2, to give another example. Now, this is where the very same context works with the very same details. The four winds of heaven churning up the great sea is a reference to God's Spirit. And by the way, Ezekiel, this is one of the first connections to Ezekiel's vision back in Ezekiel 1 because Ezekiel saw a windstorm at the very beginning of his vision. And what we're going to see here, to give you a little, little tip, we're going to see Ezekiel's vision is a heavenly view, a heavy, heavenly vision from God's perspective. And what Daniel sees in his vision is an earthly perspective that corresponds. And so this is one of the first connections to the windstorm to Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 2. What about the great sea? What does the sea in the Bible usually represent when it is being used symbolically? The sea represents Gentiles. In fact, it's always a reference to Gentiles when the reference is symbolic. On the other hand, the land or the earth is a reference to the Jews. And so we have sea and land that have this sort of symbolic, poetic Reference Gentiles, those who are apart from the covenant, and then you have the Jews in the land. They are the land of God's creation. So when Daniel says that four beasts came up out of the sea, he is talking about four Gentile kingdoms that rise to prominence in Daniel's vision. And these, like I said before, these four beasts actually match the four kingdoms that we examined in Nebuchadnezzar's dream with his dream about the metal man image Remember, they had the, the head of gold, which represented Babylon, and then it had the chest of silver, which represented Persia, and then it had the waist and the thighs of bronze, representing Greece, and then the legs of iron with the feet mixed, iron and clay, terracotta clay. Well, those four metals match these four beasts. So we're just using different kinds of symbols to, to talk about the very same thing. They also match the four cherubim in Ezekiel's vision we read early. If you read all of chapter 1 in Ezekiel, see there's four cherubim, four beasts in Ezekiel's vision and they also match, correspond to these four beasts in Daniel's vision. And if you look at the details, you'll see lions, faces, and stuff like that. So now I want you though to turn to Isaiah chapter 5 for a good example of how the sea and the land correspond to Gentiles and Jews. 
because this is actually very important to understand as we lay a context here. Isaiah chapter 5. And remember the context of Isaiah. Isaiah is a little bit before Ezekiel and Daniel. And he's prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. Verse 25 of Isaiah chapter 5. Therefore the Lord's anger burns against His people. His hand is raised and He strikes them down. The mountains shake and the dead bodies are like refuse in the streets. For all of this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. So in other words, how many times did God strike Israel by Nebuchadnezzar? Actually, three times. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah and Jerusalem actually three times. So there's the first one that Isaiah the prophet sees. He lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Babylon was a nation at the ends of the earth. Here they come swiftly and speedily. Not one of them grows tired or stumbles. Not one slumbers or sleeps. Not a belt is loosened at the waist. Not a sandal thong is broken. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows are strung. Their horses' hoofs seem like flint. Their chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Their roar is like that of a lion. Remember the association I made last time? Lion to Babylon. Well, this is what Isaiah is doing. Isaiah is associating this horde from the east, from the ends of the earth, as a lion. They roar like young lions. They growl as they seize their prey and carry it off with no one to rescue. In that day, of course, that's the day of judgment, they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. Gentiles. Babylon was a Gentile nation. And if one looks at the land, that would be, looks at Israel, he will see darkness and distress even the light will be darkened by the clouds. And so that's a good example of Isaiah talking in a historical context of judgment, referencing Gentiles as the sea and the Jews or Israel, the promised land, as the land. And we'll see how that works out as well. But that sets a context for these four beasts that rise up from the sea. These are Gentile nations that Daniel sees in his, in his vision. Verse 4, The first was like a lion and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man and the heart of a man was given to it. Now, who is Daniel referring to? The lion is a corporate symbol of Babylon as a nation. The whole nation is represented by the lion and Nebuchadnezzar specifically as their leader. Remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had his wings clipped when he was driven from the throne and seven times passed over him, which was another creation week. And then Nebuchadnezzar repented of his pride and God's spirit lifted him up on his feet just like Ezekiel the prophet had been lifted up on his feet. And the beast was given the heart of a man. I talking about the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. Biblically speaking, Nebuchadnezzar was a Gentile beast and yet through faith, he converted to the faith in the one true God and was given the heart of a man. It's about conversion. So that's what Daniel sees in his vision. The beast become, became a man. That is, Nebuchadnezzar came into covenant relationship with God by faith. Before he was, before he was this, this beast, and after, after his conversion, he becomes a man. And that's how the symbolism works. And, and we tend to think of mankind in a scientific sense. We tend to think of homo sapiens as being mankind in general. All people are man. Well, the Bible doesn't exactly work that way. You're going to see here how these beasts are actually people. That's why they're, it's symbolic of something else. But they're beasts. They're not men. In a, in a biblical sense, men or mankind are the ones in covenant with God. They're the ones who are made alive, who have the breath of life in them, and the beasts are the ones who are not in covenant with God. These are the Gentile, unbelieving nations. And interesting, I, I think if you go back even to Genesis, you see this, because Adam, remember Adam, was given the breath of life in the creation. And he was taken and made from the soil, right? He wasn't made from the sea. He was made from the soil. And he was given dominion over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, 
and the fish of the sea. And so I believe that Daniel and the godly Jews would understand their place in these four beastly kingdoms of Daniel's vision as men called to exercise dominion over these beasts. That's what the Jews were given their task. They were to exercise dominion over these beasts, these wild kingdoms, and bring them into submission to God by being in submission to the Jews and the Jewish true faith. And so you have here really an echo from Genesis because you have this idea that, that these, the Daniel and the Jews were called to tame and train these beasts. And what we find out through the story of Daniel is that when Daniel and his friends do a good job, and we see others too with Esther, which is also another story in the captivity period, the beasts were actually helpful to God's people. And when Daniel and the Jews failed in their mission to have dominion over the beasts, then the beast became dangerous to them and actually created a, a great deal of harm and destruction. And that's really what this vision, where this vision of Daniel chapter 7 goes. These kingdoms were, when they were tamed and trained, were great blessings to God's people. We saw that with Nebuchadnezzar. We saw that with Darius. We will see that with Greece. And we actually will see that with Rome as well as we go through this vision. Yet when they did not live up to their calling, these beasts became very dangerous and they exercised dominion over the men. See, that's what happens. Under God's curse, the creation comes and has dominion over the men. And we see that later with the beast of Revelation, which has actually the very same idea as we'll see, as what we're seeing in, in Daniel chapter 7, the beast of Revelation. And, and it go, again, it all goes back to Genesis with Adam's failure... His failure involved allowing the beast, the serpent, to have dominion over him and his family. So this is really just a, a new version of the same old song that we see in the Bible beginning in Genesis in the very first few chapters. Verse 5, And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, Get up and eat your fill of flesh. Now, this would be the silver portion of the statue, which would represent what kingdom? Persia, Medo-Persia, the silver kingdom. And if you think about the details about Persia, Persia represents a kingdom that stood up on the side of God's people. That is what standing up on one side means. He stood, the, the bear stood up on the right side, stood up for God's people. We see that with Cyrus, who declared that Israel was to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. So Cyrus, the Persian, decreed the return of the Jews from their captivity and actually aided in rebuilding the temple. He stood up on one side, standing up on the side of God's people. What about these three ribs that Persia consumes? Um, eating something in biblical imagery is a form of taking it into your body. It becomes part of yourself. When you eat something, it becomes part of yourself. We saw the prophet eating the scroll, eating God's word, and it became part of himself. But why three ribs? Well, as we've seen through the book of Daniel, God's people were to be priestly helpers to these kingdoms. Now, that should take you back to Genesis because remember what the story of the rib is in Genesis? God makes a helper for Adam from the rib of Adam. Takes out a rib from Adam, makes woman a helper to be a help meet to him and brings the woman to him. So we actually have three ribs and it's specific, there are three ribs that were eaten by Persia eaten by this bear. And I believe that is a reference to three conspicuous Jews who governed from within Persia. They became Persian helpers. Daniel's one of them, of course, because he, he was in Darius' administration. Can you think of two other Jews during the Persian rule who were helpers to Persia? One of them was in the story of Esther. Mordecai became a government official in Persia. And the other was Nehemiah who was a Persian official who was given the, the duty and the, and, the, and the authority to rebuild Jerusalem. So I believe these three ribs or three helpers represented the three government officials that Persia um, ingested. Verse 6, After that I looked and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard and on its back it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads and it was given authority to rule. The leopard is a fast animal. There is some bit of natural symbolism going on if you look at the animals. The leopard is a fast animal. Note the additional description with wings like a bird. And Greece, being the third kingdom, conquered this world extremely fast 
during the rule of a very famous king. Remember this king? He cried when somebody told him there was no more world to conquer. He also died very young. Alexander the Great. The leopard is a representative, an image of Alexander the Great and the Greeks. And a time of Greek dominance was a good time for God's people in history. Synagogues were established all over this world and the Old Testament was translated into Greek. The Septuagint, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, took place during the reign of Greece. And the great blessing of that was because now, through the translation of the Septuagint, Greeks all across the world could read God's word in their own language. And so this is a great blessing in God's providence that he allowed Alexander the Great to conquer the entire world very fast and, and Greek culture had certain elements of it that was very helpful to God's people. The Septuagint would not have existed without the providential success of Greece. And actually when you go and read the New Testament you're going to find out that the apostles and Jesus himself quoted from the Septuagint. Verse 7. And now we're getting to the iron portion of the metal man image of Daniel 2. After that in my vision at night I looked and there before me was a fourth beast terrifying and frightening and very powerful. He had large iron teeth. See the connection? He's using the same metal. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and it had ten horns. This idea of trampling is also very evident back in Daniel chapter 2 with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Next is a beast that defies description to Daniel. He had iron teeth. It trampled. It crushed. What kingdom is Daniel observing? I think specifically it's imperial Rome under the Caesars. Rome annihilated any kingdom that resisted its dominion. Rome mastered the art of warfare and swallowed Greece just as Persia swallowed Babylon before it. Actually, there's a symmetry here because Babylon and Persia live in the east and Greece and Rome live in the west. So we're talking about the entire known world at that period of time. So Daniel sees Rome Rome as something different than the beast that came before. Rome was a Goliath that created a great threat against God's people. And I should point out that the animal sequence may also be related to interesting details in Israel's history. Consider the story of David and Goliath. What were the animals that David slew with a sling before he took on Goliath? As a shepherd boy, David slew a lion and a bear. And that prepared him for facing Goliath on the battlefield with his sling. So we may have this recapitulation of Israel's history here because Israel would also go through a challenge of a lion, Babylon, would also go through the challenge of the bear, Persia, in preparation for facing imperial Rome. Note also that the Goliath beast has ten horns. Ten horns. Horns in the Bible symbolize strength and authority. The word for horn in Aramaic is literally a shining forth. And the equivalent word in Hebrew was used of Moses' radiant face. Moses had a radiant face, a horn face. Not in the way we tend to think of it, but that's the way it is in, in the ancient languages. Musical instruments also shine forth when they are played. Horns are also symbolic of mountains, as in the case of the horns of the altar in the tabernacle in the temple. Horns on animals grow on their heads and relate to the glory of the animal. So when you see a horn, you see their glory. It's also their strength. And this symbolizes the ten horns, which represent the ten heads of imperial Rome. Who were the first ten rulers of Rome? Who were the first ten Caesars? Some of you guys were doing homeschooling. I think some of you guys were memorizing these guys, weren't you? There was Caesar, Julius Caesar first, right? Augustus Caesar second. Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero. And then you have three that ruled for a very short time. Galba, Otho, Vitellius. And the tenth was Vespasian, who is ruling in AD 70 when his son Titus came and sacked Jerusalem and put an end to this old world. And so that's what... Daniel the prophet is actually predicting ten Roman emperors, ten Caesars. And the tenth one would be reigning at the end of this age. Verse 8. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, 
which came up among them, among the ten. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. You see the imagery of man, eyes of man there? That should tip you off that this horn is not a Gentile horn. This is actually a Jewish designation. Remember how the statue in Daniel 2 had feet made out of two substances that were mixed together? Iron and clay, right? And the, and the, and the uh, dream that Nebuchadnezzar had uh, said that they did not mix well together. They sort of didn't congeal. I take the clay as the ten, of the ten-toed statue as a reference to the Jews who understood themselves as the terracotta pot and God as the potter. Remember, the Jews are the clay and God is the potter. So the clay of the toes are the Jews mixed in with the Roman Empire. And you can see why the Jews and the Roman, the Jews and Gentiles didn't mix very well during that time period. Um, they understood themselves. And if you remember, like, like Adam, this all goes back to Genesis 2, because Adam was formed from the soil, like clay, formed in God's hands. And so, according to da- uh, Daniel chapter 2, God's rock, not cut out with human hands, would come and strike the clay feet of the statue and bring the whole statue crumbling down with this new kingdom. And then the rock would fill the entire earth. And so what we see here in Daniel's vision is that Jesus came and collided with the Jewish rulers, the clay that did not bond well with the iron, and the fourth kingdom. And that's really the background here because this little horn represents, that comes up among the ten horns, represents the Jewish rulers and specifically the leadership of the Jews with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, but specifically Herod, the Herods, the Herodian rule. These guys were actually Gentiles and yet through circumcision became Jews and ruled Judea and Jerusalem for many years. And in exchange for their submission to Rome, they were given authority over Judea. And there were actually three Herods in biblical times, in the biblical time period, and those three Herods were given their authority by three Roman emperors. You have Herod the Great, who attempted to kill the baby Jesus. Remember the story of the baby Jesus when the wise men from the east, the wise men from Persia come, and Herod is scared about this new king, and he tries to kill the babies. And then you have Herod Antipas, who killed John the Baptist. Remember, he beheaded John the Baptist and put him on a silver platter. And then we have another story about a Herod in Acts chapter 12, and we'll get to that in a second. But the Jews were this, mixed with Rome, in crucifying Jesus, became joined with or mixed with this Goliath beast that Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 7. So let's continue in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. I want to save these two verses for next, next time so we can really concentrate on them. My goal here is to give a context for Daniel's statement and I think the beasts, if you look at the beasts first, in the context, as the context for the man that, that Daniel sees in these verses, we'll understand it. But suffice it to say for now, this is talking about Jesus in some way and great events in covenant history that took place in the first century. And so we'll dive more into this text next time. But Daniel continues to speak about the little horn. This is what captivates Daniel. The little horn that comes up from among, in among the ten horns of that beast. Verse 11. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. So there were three Herods in, 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 biblical, in biblical times. And there's actually a symbolic fulfillment of this with the third Herod We actually covered this in our studies through Acts. Go to Acts chapter 12. And remember that the horn has the eyes of a man. That should give us an idea of the Jewish designation. And it had a mouth that spoke great words. 
a great boast. And that fits all the Herodian rulers. Herod the Great boasts about his great building projects, his palaces. He's the one who made the temple beautiful. Then you have Herod Antipas who had great boasts as well. And then you have King Herod Agrippa I in Acts chapter 12. And let's see what happens to him because actually what we see here is a miniature fulfillment of Daniel 7 with Acts chapter 12 beginning at the end of verse 19. Then Herod, this would be Herod Agrippa I, went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there for a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Remember, this is a Jew. This is a guy who's supposed to be a faithful Jew. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Of course, the contrast is, but the word of God continued to increase and spread. And so this is a little miniature fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, one of the little horns who immediately was killed and his body was destroyed by worms. And that gives a picture of what's going to happen to all the Jewish leaders and the entire Jewish nation with the fires of Gehenna, which took place in AD 70 when Rome invaded Judea and Jerusalem because Gehenna was a place of fire burning and the undying worm. So we have lots of connections here with Daniel chapter 7 being the background for details that happen in the New Testament. And that is why the other beasts, a compilation of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome were allowed to live for a period of time after their authority was stripped. Remember what Jesus said after his resurrection? All power in heaven and earth has been given to me. See, the power was stripped from these kingdoms and it was given to Jesus Christ. And yet, in God's plan, in Daniel's vision here, these beasts were allowed to live for a certain period of time to fulfill God's purposes. These beasts lived on to exercise God's judgment on Israel, the whore, whom the book of Revelation portrays as riding on a great beast. And this is the same beast. John the Apostle sees the very same beast from the other direction as Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 7. And we see what happens is Israel the whore is riding on the beast, devouring the saints. And what happens in the book of Revelation is that the beast turns on the woman, on the the prostitute, and devours her. And that's what happened in AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem. When Rome came to Judea and destroyed the little horn rulers along with the entire nation of the apostate Jews, ending the old world creation and bringing about the full manifestation of the new covenant, the new heavens and earth, into history. Now I want to close by showing you how all the details here in Daniel 7 set the context for that, part, that particular text in Revelation. Turn with me to Revelation 13. And I want you to look at the details here in Revelation 13 because what you're going to see is that um, all the same stuff is coming up in Revelation 13 that is introduced in Daniel chapter 7. Revelation 13, beginning in verse 2, or actually the second half of verse 1. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea. Sound familiar? He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns and on each head a blasphemous name. What do the Caesars call themselves? They call themselves the divine. They believe themselves as gods. And so they were blaspheming God by their names the Caesars, the ten Caesars. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had the feet, had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. Look familiar? It's reversed, right? Daniel's looking at it from one direction and he's seeing lion, bear, leopard. John's looking at it the other direction and he's looking backwards. He sees, what does he see? Leopard, bear, lion. Same beast. Exact same beast. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. Now skipping down to verse 11, this would actually be the little horn that Daniel saw in his vision in Daniel 7. Then I saw another beast 
coming out of the earth. That would be the Jewish leaders, the Jewish beasts. He had two horns like a lamb. Remember, the, a lamb should give you the image of God's people. They were Jews by circumcision, the Herods specifically. And of course, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law thought of themselves as God's people. But he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And so these Jewish rulers, the Herods, exercised Roman authority in Judea on his behalf. And they, of course, in exchange for this authority over Judea, they made all the inhabitants worship the Roman Empire. And we see this happening specifically with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ when the Jews said, we have no king but Caesar. That was a form of worship. And that was something that the leaders of the Jewish government required of them in order to get Jesus crucified. You also see some other interesting things because you have Pilate who is the Roman governor of Judea and then you have Herod. In the story of the crucifixion, what happens to Pilate and Herod? Pilate representing Rome, Herod representing Judea and the Jews. They become friends. You read that in Luke. It's a very interesting story about how Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate dressed in royal robes. That was going to be a real big problem for Pilate. And they became friends afterwards. So this is the little horn, the beast up from the earth, fulfilling Daniel chapter 7. The Jews had quite literally gotten into bed with Rome, in bed with a beast, as they rejected their Messiah and persecuted the early church. And these details, which we see come to pass in the New Testament, exactly as Daniel sees his vision, exactly how he saw it 500 years ahead of time, gives us a context to understand what's going on in the New Testament. Now, I am confident that the early church understood Daniel 7 much better than we understand it today. And you'll see, we'll see later how these, this vision vexed Daniel as it would trouble all of God's faithful people. And the reason it would vex Daniel is because what Daniel really foresaw here was the ultimate act of spiritual adultery. And that's how Daniel 7 matches up with the, the seventh commandment in the Ten Commandments. Remember, we've gone through the Ten Commandments as associated with each chapter of Daniel. This was the, what Daniel sees here with the apostasy of the Jewish leaders and the Jewish nation is the ultimate act of spiritual adultery. And the seventh commandment is, you shall not commit adultery. Now, the early church needed to understand all of this. Put yourself into their position. Jesus talked about a great persecution to come. Where did he get the idea from? He got the idea from Daniel. Daniel talked about a great persecution to come. Jesus told his disciples that they would have a great tribulation, that they would face great persecution for believing in his name. They understood that the wicked and apostate Jews in the first century would be given the power to persecute and kill the believers, the early Christians. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus came as an outsider. Jesus did not come from the government of Jerusalem, the government of Judea, because in Daniel's prophecy, they were corrupt. Jesus comes from outside the government and pronounces judgment on them, just like Ezekiel came and pronounced judgment of, against Israel. And Jesus warned his disciples about this great persecution, about the great destruction, and the great difficult trial of those days. And so you can understand why the New Testament people, the early Christians, would need to understand Daniel 7, so that they would not be surprised when the little horn using the Roman Empire, using the sea beast, would do this against God's people and try to persecute and kill God's church from the very earliest days. Now, we live in the shadow of that victory. We live in the kingdom that was given over to the saints, to men, not to animals. We're going to see how that works next time. But we should have much to be thankful for in our day because of the victory of Jesus Christ. We can also learn a great deal about our responsibility as children of God, as men and women made in the image of God, because there remains wild beasts in God's world that we are given over to train and to tame. There are still, every once in a while, there are wild beasts out there. And just like Daniel 
And God's people under the Old Covenant had a responsibility to exercise dominion over those beasts. So we can learn when we see great beasts that threaten God's kingdom, that threaten God's people, what we are to do with that. We are to exercise dominion over the beasts. And the best way to do that, of course, is to turn them into men. Right? Tame them. Domesticate them. And so you could do that a lot of different ways in your own life. We, as God's people, have a great responsibility politically, socially. We can do this by voting for Ron Paul, I think, is a great example of that. I think you can do this by the Election Day sermon that we're preaching. These kinds of activities are thoroughly grounded in the history of God's people. And of course, we help others in other parts of the world that are facing persecution. They are facing their own beasts like in South Africa or in the Sudan or other places in Asia, China. That is what it means to be God's people. We are created to have dominion over the beasts. And God gives us wisdom how to do that. And we learn that wisdom by watching Daniel in his situation, in his circumstance. So Daniel, along with the wider biblical context, shows us how that work of dominion is done and the dangers when it is not done well danger is these beasts become very destructive to God's people. So we should learn the lessons of Daniel 7. And next time, we will look at the visions of Daniel and the man. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. You have raised us up in newness of life. You have opened our hearts.